You are listening to Perplexity. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Perplexity, a mystery podcast. As always, I'm your host, Kadra, and today I am bringing you guys another tale that has perplexed me, but also horrified me and upset me greatly. If you are new here, I tell tales that have perplexed me every single week. So if you love a good mystery that leaves you wanting more and you are watching on YouTube, be sure to hit the subscribe button and the notification button. Or if you're listening on a podcast and you enjoy, add this show to your list and it would mean a lot if you left a five-star review. So I have a really big story for you guys today. This is a true crime story and it is going to be very heavy, but I think it is a very important case to talk about. But with that being said, I do want to issue a big trigger warning. Listener discretion is advised. This podcast is not for children and we will be talking about some very disturbing content today. Uh, The sources that were used for today's episode will also all be available down in the show notes. So this story begins really in late June 2017 in Toronto, Canada, but we will be going back much further as this story progresses. So at this time, Toronto had just finished celebrating their Pride weekend for LGBTQ And they were just having a great time doing their parade. But the day after the celebration, a 49-year-old man named Andrew Kinsman had his friends and family very concerned because it had been several days since they had last heard from him or seen him. Kinsman was a gay man. He was an LGBT activist and he was well-established, a superintendent and a long-term volunteer for the Toronto People with AIDS Foundation. Kinsman had many friends and he was well-liked. He told his friend Robin that Monday that he was gonna meet up with some friend for coffee, but he never returned. He was last seen at 71 Winchester Street. And by the time it was Wednesday, Robin knew for sure that something was wrong. So Robin reached out to another one of Andrew's friends, a man named Tom, and tells him what's going on. So like good friends would do, Robin and Tom both decide that they're going to go to Andrew's apartment and see if they can figure out where he went. So I'm not sure how, but they do get inside Andrew's apartment. They're looking around, but everything seems pretty ordinary. Nothing was in disarray. There were no signs of a struggle or, you know, any blood, nothing like that. But they do notice that Andrew's bag is missing. And Andrew carried this particular bag with him everywhere. So they think he must have gone somewhere, but to where, they have no idea. And this is when things get really troublesome. Then they find Andrew's 17-year-old cat. And his cat was left without food or water. And Andrew loved this cat greatly. And then also it's an elderly animal. He needs a lot of care. So they know that Andrew wouldn't just leave without making sure his cat was taken care of. So this is when Robin and Tom report Andrew missing to Toronto police. Andrew had a lot of friends in the church and Wellesley area of Toronto, also known as the Gay Village. He was a regular at the businesses there and he had a lot of friends around. His friends quickly put their own search team together and they're looking everywhere for him. 
because at this point, the police are not involved in the search. So someone has to look. They're calling local media stations. They're hanging up posters everywhere. And because Andrew had this really strong support system, pressure starts getting put on the police department as it should be. So they're calling the police station all the time and eventually police do get involved in the search and they start investigating. They're calling people who knew Andrew, they're interviewing them, asking them questions. And then they're also looking into Andrew's personal records, finances, bank statements, call logs. They're even checking local shelters and hospitals. But despite them combing through Andrew Kinsman's life, they're not finding any red flags. There's no reason for him to just disappear on his own volition. And Andrew also hadn't accessed his phone since the day that he was last seen, Monday. He hadn't used his credit cards either, and he hadn't withdrawn any money from his bank account. What was also very concerning to Andrew's chosen family is that he was not the first gay man from the gay village to recently disappear. Just a few months prior, 44-year-old Salim Essen had disappeared in mid-April. He was last seen in the Yang and Blore area. A Turkish native, Salim was unemployed and he was a known drug user. He frequented the gay village area and Essen had just gotten a place of his own and his friends would later say he was working towards recovery at the time of his disappearance which is so tragic because it's like he was finally starting to get his life together. He did have more of a transient lifestyle still at the time. He had just gotten this place, but it sounds like he often couch surfed and he was known to take very few belongings with him everywhere. And he would keep them all in this silver plastic suitcase with wheels. So when Salim never returned, his suitcase was also nowhere to be found. So a lot of people just assumed that he went to another town to hang out at, and it would be several weeks before he would ever be reported missing. And police had not yet connected the disappearances of Andrew and Salim, but people in the area had. They knew that this area was vulnerable to hate crimes and attacks. They also felt these cases were connected because going all the way back to 2010, there had been six other gay men who had disappeared from the area without a trace. September 16th, 2010 seems to be when the first disappearance took place. Another man who frequented this area was a 43-year-old Sri Lankan refugee named Skanda Navaratnam. He was last seen leaving a gay bar called Zippers, and just three months later, another man would disappear. 44-year-old Abdul Basir Faizi, who went by Basir, would later disappear at the end of December. Faizi was an immigrant from Afghanistan, and he was married with children, but he was leading this double life, frequenting the gay village. He was last seen leaving work at about 7 p.m. December 28, 2010, near the area of Church and Wellesley Streets. Two years later, in October 2012, another disappearance would occur. And this would be 58-year-old Majid Kaihan, who went by Hamed. 
Similarly, Kaihan was married. He was an Afghan man leading this double life frequenting the gay village. In case you haven't noticed, there are a lot of similarities here. All of these men were Middle Eastern or South Asian. They had very similar likeness too. Like if you look at pictures of them, even like the facial hair is similar. They're around the same age. And these cases had all been investigated by Toronto police, but they were worked individually. Now to be fair, there were no bodies, no witnesses, and no signs of these men being harmed in any way. But one of the female detectives working these men's disappearances at the time claims she believed these cases could be connected and that there could be a serial killer in Toronto. But her suggestions allegedly were dismissed by Toronto police. It seems that after Kaihan went missing, since he was the third person, police finally started to realize this may not just be coincidence. So a few weeks after Kaihan's disappearance, police put together a task force in November 2012, and they called it Project Houston. They named the project Project Houston after the infamous phrase, Houston, we have a problem. And we'll talk more specifically about why they called it that in a second. Detective Harris gets a tip in regards to Navaratnam's disappearance. The tip came from a detective from Bern, Switzerland. And the tip was that Skanda Navaratnam had been kidnapped, murdered, and eaten by a cannibal in Toronto. The detective had come across a website, and I'm not going to say the name of this website, but it was about cannibalism. And he started to speak with someone who was active on this website with the username ChefMate50. This user would claim to the detective that he had kidnapped, murdered, and cannibalized a brown-skinned man from the gay village in Toronto between 2009 and 2011 and Navaratnam disappeared in 2010. The detective believed this victim could be Skanda, so he calls this detective to tell her about his concerns. So they quickly link this username, ChefMate50, to an email address, and they would eventually be able to trace this email back to a man named James Brunton. Brunton had been emailing people all over the world about his fantasies to torture them, kill them, and eat them. And a lot of these stories, you find that these men, these monsters, lead incredibly normal lives. And Brunton is no different. Brunton was a minor hockey coach, coaching children, in his mid-60s, and he was married to a woman, he had a daughter, and he had absolutely no criminal record of any kind. He also lived near Toronto, and he volunteered with a suicidal hotline. So just this complete double life, so scary. People who were close to him knew that he frequented the gay village, and police basically saw Brunton as a suspect at this point. Meanwhile, they're looking more and more into other missing person cases in this area, and they start to see this potential link between Navaratnam, Faizi, and Kaihan. People in the village were relieved that police were finally looking into these concerns. Police worked with an IT expert who was able to create a profile and contact ChefMate50. 
So Chefmate 50 went into unspeakable detail on his experience with cannibalism and how he had murdered multiple people at a cabin in Toronto. But police still could not find anything tangible to connect Brunton to these crimes. Now, police did eventually infiltrate Brunton's home, and they did this while he and his wife were not home, and they did clone Brunton's computer. This was on Christmas Day, so Brunton and his wife were out of town visiting family, and they find more disturbing chats and emails, and they start to think more and more about this cabin that Brunton had described online. They're looking at maps, they have drones, and they're searching for cabins. But the trees in this area were so thick and dense that they knew that they needed to get boots on the grounds to find this cabin. Police eventually find a cabin and they have all these trees surrounding the cabin and a lot of the tree trunks had purple ribbon tied around them. So it was like these purple ribbons were like a path to the cabin. They also find a long beam near the cabin, about 15 to 20 feet tall, and it had this pulley system, ropes, and hooks, so you could suspend whatever you wanted on it. And in the chat with Chefmate 50, Brunton had described these fantasies and how he had allegedly killed and cannibalized people, and he had hung their bodies on this hook pulley system so they're like oh my god we just found where he's you know putting these bodies the pulley system was located in front of the cabin and they start looking inside the cabin and they see that brunton had described the cabin very similarly it looks the same inside and then they also see this big fire pit and near the fire pit they find a number of male boots and shoes nailed to a tree with burn marks all over them. The shoes were taken to forensics to see if they could get any DNA, but the DNA was negative for any of the missing men that they were looking for in Toronto, and the DNA also did not match anyone in the National Data Bank. But I'm still wondering at this point, okay, then who... Like, what DNA did you find? Who, like, was it his DNA? Like, I, it's very concerning, obviously. And police did continue to search through Brutton's computer. This IT expert was working on it, combing through all the files, and he would describe the files as being the most disturbing content you could ever see. Just unimaginable. Eventually, police do find an email between Brunton posing as Chefmate 50, and he's typed out this written agreement between him and a 15-year-old boy. And the agreement was that when this boy turned 18, Chefmate could do whatever he wanted to him and basically have control over his body. He could kill him, he could do whatever. The teenager was found in Colorado with help from the sexual exploitation unit, and thank God the boy was alive unharmed, and he said that Brunton had greatly pressured him to agree to this contract, but he had refused. He also said that Brunton had asked the boy to send him naked pictures. 
And at this point, police are still digging through Brunton's computer. There's tons and tons of data on it. And eventually they come across a video from 2003. If you remember, Brunton is a minor league hockey coach for children, okay? So they find this video and it is a hidden camera, wouldn't you know, in the boys' locker room. So he had been filming these boys without them knowing as they undressed. Just disgusting. The one silver lining in this though is that this now gave police enough to arrest Brunton and they took it one step further uh, to have a cop pose on this website. So there's this terminology they use on the website and it's so disturbing. So if you are a long pig, you are someone who is willing to give yourself up to be cannibalized. And the person killing is known as a master chef. So the undercover officer poses as a long pig and creates this profile. And pretty much immediately they get an email from Chef Mate 50. So Chef Mate 50, also known as Brunton, claims he can fulfill his request to be cannibalized. And he asks this person to meet Brunton at his cabin. So a full team goes to this cabin in the woods in Toronto. They're ready to go. They've got a SWAT team and they have people very closely surveilling Brunton so they know when he's headed to the cabin. He does leave his house and he drives around, but he drives to a mall and then he turns around and drives back home. So. It's not clear if he got cold feet or if he's just making all of this up. It's just fantasy. But eventually police can't sit on this anymore. I guess they were hoping to also get an arrest for like attempted murder or something. But they still have enough to arrest him because of the child pornography. So they arrest him in his home and he gets brought to the station for further questioning. So the whole time that he's being questioned, he has his head down, he's not talking, he's not making eye contact, and he has absolutely no reaction as the charges are being read to him. But as soon as they start talking about what he said online, about killing people, eating people, it's like his whole demeanor changes. He like lights up and sits up and he's all open and he fully admits to saying everything that he said online, like he's proud of it. But Brunton would claim that this was all fantasy based and none of it was actually true. He was later found guilty of creating, possessing and distributing child sex abuse material. And they couldn't find anything else to link Brunton to the disappearances of the men in the gay village. So Brunton was ruled out as a suspect, but I still am like, okay, what, what the hell were all those burned shoes? Like just huge question marks there, but we don't know. Very upsetting, but obviously we still need to figure out who's responsible for all these men's disappearances in Toronto. So police are looking back at all of this and they're, you know, trying to piece together what could have happened to these men. Also, I forgot to mention, uh, I said I was gonna talk more about the name Project Houston. They specifically came up with that name when they were worried that there was a cannibal in Toronto. So it was like, Houston, we have a problem. There could be a cannibal here. Anyway, 
Project Houston continues their investigation into other suspects. They're looking into any possible leads. And this investigation continued until April 2014. So after about a year and a half of investigating the disappearances of these three men, they had nothing but dead ends, and not to mention no other men had disappeared from the area. So things go silent for about three years until the summer of 2017, when the two men that I told you about at the beginning would disappear, Andrew Kinsman and Salim Essen. So the community is rocked once again when Kinsman and Essen disappear. While Andrew did not fit the physical profile of the other four men that had gone missing as he was a white man, he was a gay man and he had mysteriously vanished from the same area. And this was a pretty small, tight-knit community. So a lot of people thought this could still be connected to all the other men's disappearances. So in 2017, another task force is created known as Project PRISM, but this project specifically focused on the disappearances of Kinsmen and Essen. They're not really looking further at the other men at this point. And a lot of people think that police still hadn't connected all of these disappearances together. They were still working them separate. Detective David Dickinson, who had been working in homicide for five years, was asked to oversee this investigation, but by the way, this was the first time he had ever overseen a missing person's case. So he's worked in homicide, but he's inexperienced with working missing person's cases. Because Kinsman was last seen at his residence, police start their investigation there. So they're looking around and they see that Andrew kept a paper calendar in his apartment. And police find there are two written reminders uh, for the day of June 26th, 2017, the day he disappeared. The first reminder was to pay his phone bill, but the second one said, 3 p.m., Bruce. And it is believed that this was around the time that Andrew Kinsman vanished. So now they have a name, but that's all they have, a first name, Bruce, but it's a lead. So they're wondering if perhaps this Bruce is the man that he was going to meet for coffee, the one that he had told Robin about. Police then began to look at the street cameras surrounding Kinsman's apartment complex to see if they can see who this person was or if they can see Kinsman leaving the apartment at all. And eventually they find some interesting footage on one of the cameras that's aimed at a street corner outside the building. At 3 p.m., a red van can be seen pulling up to the street corner for just a few seconds and then quickly pulling away. Later though, they find a second security camera with a better angle of this red van. And in this angle, you can see a man getting into the passenger seat. And these two clips are on CBC's website, so I'll include the link in the show notes if you wanna watch the video. The camera quality is not the best, it's far away. So you can't make out the license plate. Uh, you can't see anything about the driver and you also really can't tell much about the passenger other than they appear to be male and whoever this passenger was, they're very tall because they're towering over the vehicle. And Kinsman was about six foot four. Police figure out eventually that this red van is a Dodge Caravan 2004 
25th anniversary edition. So then they get a list of all these vehicles registered to Ontario that, you know, match this description, but it has more than 6,100 names on it. But when they start looking at the names of the owners, you know, looking for Bruce's, then there's only about five names and only one drove the 25th anniversary edition. And this was a man named Bruce MacArthur. Thomas Donald Bruce MacArthur, who went by Bruce, was a 66-year-old man born in 1951 in Ontario. He was raised on a farm and his parents fostered troubled children from Toronto. So many children were in and out of his home at any given time. His family had built a good reputation in the area, and growing up, Bruce was known to be a teacher's pet and very well-behaved. He was also well-liked in the area in his adult life, and he even owned his own landscaping business. He had a lot of clientele in Toronto, and he was married to a woman named Janice Campbell. They were married for a long time, but in the 90s, he began to have secret sexual affairs with men. He eventually came out to his wife and they continued to live together for financial reasons. Bruce had suspected he was gay from a young age, but he lived in a very religious household, so he had to suppress his sexuality. He remained closeted for decades and continued to be very active in the church until the 90s. Bruce MacArthur had five children and he was also a grandfather. In 1997, Bruce and Janice did finally separate, and they were also going through a lot of financial problems. Remember, they stayed together for financial reasons, um, but they did eventually separate, and when they did this, they declared bankruptcy in 1999. So he was clearly going through a lot of stress, and after his divorce, MacArthur would move into a small apartment in Toronto. Bruce was a big, burly man with round features and a friendly appearance. He had snow white hair, and in his free time, he dressed up as a mall Santa Claus. He worked at the mall as a Santa, and children would sit in his lap every year and tell him what they wanted for Christmas. So he's this friendly, jolly looking man, but when police start looking into MacArthur, they quickly find big red flags. One year before Kinsman and Essen disappeared in 2016, MacArthur had actually been arrested for a brutal assault on a man in the back of his red van. He had choked and nearly killed this man, but the man luckily survived. After committing the assault, MacArthur walked himself into the Toronto police station claiming he needed to put a statement on record about an incident that occurred between him and his partner. He claimed that while he and his partner were being intimate, he choked him. So he did admit to choking this man, but he claimed that he choked his partner because he asked him to, that it was consensual. And this was just one big misunderstanding. The identity of this victim was never released to the public, but we do know that this man was married and his wife was not aware of this affair. It's likely the man never pressed charges due to fear of outing himself. And because charges were never pressed, nothing further happened with MacArthur at this time. And him getting in front of the investigation, you know, walking in and pretty much, you know, confessing and trying to paint this as this consensual affair. This is a pattern with Bruce MacArthur. 
Police soon discover this is not the only documentation that they have on MacArthur. In 2001, so going way back and just a few years after he was divorced, MacArthur had pled guilty and was convicted of assault after beating a man with a metal pipe in his home on October 31st. Now, at first when I started looking at this, I was pretty confused about who this man was because a lot of the sources called him a sex worker and that he and MacArthur had met in an online chat room, that they were meeting up for sex, blah, blah, blah. But then I started looking more and more and several other sources paint a much different and I think much more accurate picture of what actually happened. So this victim was a man named Mark Henderson and Henderson was a familiar face in the Toronto gay village. He was well-liked. On Halloween, Henderson locked up his bicycle and saw MacArthur paying for street parking. Henderson and MacArthur knew each other, but in some interviews, Henderson says that he didn't really like MacArthur. He wasn't fond of him. MacArthur jogged to catch up with Henderson, though, and he just thought that maybe he was trying to catch the door and go in, you know, go in the building. So Henderson lets him in through the apartment building's security door, and they start striking up this conversation about their plans for Halloween, because it's Halloween day. And they're talking about the costume Henderson's gonna wear, blah, blah, blah. And then before Henderson knows, when he's outside of his apartment door, and this is in broad daylight, he feels something strike him with great force in the back of his head, bringing Henderson to his knees. So he's rattled, he turns around, and he sees Bruce MacArthur with a huge metal pipe. And he strikes down on Henderson again. And so Henderson is dazed, confused, he's terrified, and he would later say in interviews that cerebrospinal fluid and blood was pouring down from his head. So he's scrambling to get in his apartment. He's trying to call 911. And luckily, Henderson is able to get to a phone. He's calling 911 as Bruce MacArthur is standing there. And Bruce is begging him, like, don't turn me in, don't turn me in. And the police dispatch is like, can you describe the man? What does he look like? And he is telling dispatch what this man is wearing as he's just, he's staring at Bruce. And so they're like literally face to face he, this man has just tried to kill him, and he's like, yeah, he's wearing this, blah, blah, blah. Like, just terrifying and insane. This entire attack took less than five minutes. He fractured his skull. And the reason that his fingers were broken is because he lifted his hand trying to defend himself, and it broke several of his fingers. So the next thing that this victim, Mark Henderson, remembers is the EMTs cracking jokes laying over him. So this man has just had his skull fractured and the people that are supposed to be helping him and giving him medical attention are cracking jokes. And police asked him repeatedly if he was having sex with MacArthur. Not, I'm so sorry this happens to you. Not, can you describe this man? Just immediately victim blaming. This is 2001, it's just horrific. I cannot imagine what this man went through. By the way, Mark Henderson was studying to become a nurse. He was a sex worker in the past with a drug addiction in the past. And then he went through rehab and he was studying 
to become a healthcare worker when this happened to him. But the media painted him as a sex worker who was having sex with a gay man and, you know, basically blaming him. So it's, you know, just another one of those disgusting, horrific stories um, of victim blaming. And you see this with how police worked this case too, because they did not even bother to take a statement from Henderson. So when you look at this, there's like no record of his statement whatsoever. Henderson would later learn that MacArthur also quickly turned himself in after that, claiming that they had been having sex and he's trying to build this narrative and get ahead of things, just like he would do with this other assault years later. In Netflix's series, Catching Killers, Henderson's story is also conveniently not featured. Instead, he says that he was carved out of this narrative because Toronto's cops had a chance to catch MacArthur much sooner. This was in 2001. He gave this man a skull fracture and they didn't even get a statement, nothing. So, you know, MacArthur gets in front of this. He does confess, but you'll see. It's just, it's very cunning the way that Bruce MacArthur did all of this. So Mark Henderson would later say in an interview, quote, I would defend the police if they did get it right but they just kept doing everything wrong. And the fact that they're even ignoring me now drives me up the wall, end quote. So at the time of his attack, like I said, Henderson was studying to become a nurse. He was modeling in bars and clubs to make ends meet. And he was full of energy, confident. He was happy to jump on a stage. He would dance and do comedy. So he would entertain people, make them laugh. He also championed a safe sex message in the community and contributed often towards establishing the Casey House, which was Canada's first hospital specializing in the treatment of HIV. But after his attack, Henderson became afraid of the dark. He began to avoid people and he was dealing with PTSD, trauma, extreme seasons of anger. And he even had panic attacks on the street, swearing that he would see MacArthur, even though he knew this was impossible. So, like I said, Bruce MacArthur confesses, he gets in front of this and he tries to like paint this whole picture of this being just this consensual thing gone wrong, whatever. And he is charged with assault, but Bruce MacArthur underwent a psychological assessment and he was determined to be a low risk for being a repeat offender. He was given a conditional sentence of about two years, which included being banned from the gay village. And he had like house arrest for a year. He had probation, but he served no jail time for attempted murder. So I do think like Henderson said, it's pretty convenient that Henderson's story was not mentioned in the Catching Killers documentary where they interview police and it's a very like police centered show just my opinion in 2003 bruce macarthur was given a full pardon and henderson says he returned to the police many times saying he wanted to make an official statement 
but police dismissed Henderson time after time. It would also later be discovered that Bruce was having hookups with sex workers, and we know that he was highly aggressive with at least one man in 2012 who left Toronto shortly after this incident and dealt with trauma and fear for his life. MacArthur also became enraged when this man mentioned that he and his boyfriend tracked each other's locations. So this man believes that looking back, MacArthur likely planned to murder him. And then he decided against this with fear of getting caught. So now going back to the Project Houston investigation, eventually the lead officer over the project would get word that Bruce MacArthur was a suspect. And turns out they had questioned Bruce MacArthur in 2013 as well about this specific group of missing men because he had known connections to the missing men. When looking through Skanda's computer, police found emails from a Hotmail account, silverfox51 at hotmail.com. Skanda had also written this email address down on a piece of paper that police would find. And when they searched the IP address, it's connected to Bruce MacArthur. November 11th, 2013, MacArthur was asked to come speak with police as a witness. He admitted to knowing Skanda, saying that they used to hang out together at a bar in the gay village called the Black Eagle, but he denied having any kind of sexual relationship with him. This was later determined to be a lie because MacArthur had been dating Skanda on and off for the last decade. When police asked why his email address would be written down in Skanda's apartment, MacArthur offered no explanation. And at that point, police are thinking Skanda may have written down MacArthur's email address after finding it on a dating site that they were both on. The other connection was with Basir. Basir was on the same dating website. And MacArthur also admitted in this interview to personally knowing Kaihan the man who went by Hamed and went missing in 2012. He even admitted to having a sexual relationship with Hamed, and Hamed was also a former employee of Bruce at his landscaping company. Like, come on. At the time, police found Bruce to be affable, credible, and very believable. He was also very cooperative and helpful with the investigation and he wasn't considered a suspect. So flashing forward to 2017, when these next two men disappear, this has been going on for at least 17 years at this point. So they're doing Project Prism in 2017, and now, fucking finally, all of the signs are pointing to Bruce MacArthur in the eyes of the police even though the signs, in my opinion, were clearly pointed to him decades before this. Police quickly find out MacArthur has also now conveniently sold his red van, and police start calling auto body shops thinking he may have sold it for parts. And after weeks, they do find an auto parts shop about an hour away that bought a red Dodge Caravan just after the murders. The owner of the auto parts uh, also still had the van there, and other than the license plate and the tires being gone, the van inside and the whole body outside is intact. So they're like, great, we can start, you know, looking inside. 
So they look inside this vehicle. It's pretty messy. It's like dirty. There's coffee cups everywhere. And there is this dried liquid that they say was covering the tailgate. And whatever this liquid was, it was attracting a lot of small flies. Police then took the van to forensics for processing and a very small amount, like the size of a pinky nail, of Andrew Kensman's blood was found inside. But this blood was not enough to press charges. You know, it's, it's such a minuscule amount. So at this point, MacArthur is definitely a suspect. He's being heavily surveilled, but they don't have enough to arrest him for murder. One source I read also said that they found DNA evidence of Salim Essen as well inside of the van, but I only found it from one source, and a lot of the other sources that I watched and read did not mention this, so take of that what you will. MacArthur also, and this is a huge question mark for me that we're going to talk about more, but MacArthur lived with a roommate and they wanted to search the apartment, but they don't want the roommate or MacArthur to know. So they plan to search the apartment while they're both not home. They get a warrant and they're planning to clone MacArthur's computer and hard drive. So they search for any physical evidence that they can link to Andrew Kinsman. And eventually they do find a time where MacArthur and his roommate are not home. Police enter the apartment. And at this point, they've been surveilling Bruce heavily. They know his routine and they know that they're gonna have plenty of time to get everything that they need. They've also put a GPS tracking device on MacArthur's vehicle so that they'll know if they, you know, if he's coming back. So they'll know when they need to leave. Police get to work and they do find some clues basically a murder kit. There's rope, gloves, tape, a nine inch metal bar covered in tape, a bunch of post-it notes with various usernames and passwords to websites. And there's this orange stain on Bruce's pillow that they swab for DNA. Police are also cloning his computer, but it's gonna take a couple hours to fully get everything off of it. So despite having memorized Bruce MacArthur's patterns, routines, for whatever reason on this particular day, MacArthur decided to turn around and go back home after being gone for just about an hour and a half. So the surveillance team sees this. They quickly contact the police inside, warning them Bruce is on his way back and he'll be back in just 10 minutes. So basically they have to hustle and get as much done as they possibly can before Bruce gets back. They don't wanna leave any trace of them having been there, but they really need what's on that computer and it's taking forever to clone it. When police first entered the apartment, they also took pictures of how everything looked so that they could put it all back the way that it was because they don't want Bruce to have any inclination they were there. So they're putting everything back while they're cloning this computer and they get about 50% of the data off of the computer just before Bruce gets back. So they're able to sneak out just a few minutes before Bruce gets home. And then it's time to start, you know, looking through this 50% of data. So police are taking everything they can. They're looking at it and they find web history, chats, emails, pictures, metadata, that included a vast amount of photos that had been deleted. 
Police are searching this computer for weeks. They're not finding anything, but eventually they find a lot of pictures of men, including pictures of Andrew Kinsman, Skanda Navaratnam, Basir Faizi, and Hamed Kaihan. The very next day was Toronto's police annual press conference, and turns out they had a lot to answer for. Like, obviously all of these men's disappearances too, but that's not all. There are also recent disappearances of Alora Wells, a 27-year-old transgendered mixed race woman who had gone missing in June of 2017, but was not identified until late November 2017. Alora frequented Gay Village, and there was also Tess Ritchie, who had gone missing for four days and was later found dead by her own mother at the bottom of a stairwell in Gay Village, just two doors down from where she had first disappeared. Police are also discussing Project Prism, but they're still not disclosing that there is a serial killer in this area, even though they know this at this point. So, you know, statistically, I personally think this is pretty alarming that they've had this many people go missing in this one tight-knit area, you know, so close together. That's four people who have gone missing from this area in 2017, if you, you know, are talking to about Alora and Tess. So, in my opinion, there were a lot of question marks in how police were handling missing persons in this area especially people in the gay village. Meanwhile, police continue to look further and further into Bruce MacArthur. January of 2018, police find more pictures on Bruce's computer. And this time, the photos are of Salim Essen, the other man who had gone missing in 2017, a few months before Andrew Kinsman. So at this point, police have now found photos of known missing persons on Bruce's computer, five of these missing men. And this time, when they find the photos of Salim Essen, it's not just like profile pictures of him. These photos were of Salim Essen lying dead on Bruce's bed. It appeared that Bruce had used a metal pipe to tighten a ligature around Salim's neck, cutting off his oxygen and suffocating him. They then find a photo of Andrew Kinsman, dead in the back of Bruce's van. And there were other pictures of men in these files, clearly dead, that police didn't even recognize. Many of the men were also posed, wearing a fur coat, sometimes wearing a hat with cigars in their mouth, and some had a ligature around their neck. One victim had even been decapitated. Police then get a call January 18th from the surveillance team because they're still watching Bruce very closely, 24 hours a day. And Bruce has now brought another man to his apartment. So they know that they need to act quickly. The team of officers rush to Bruce MacArthur's apartment building. And Bruce lives on the 19th floor. So it's just after 10 a.m., again, like broad daylight, this man is just so confident, it fucking disgusts me. And the police rush in, but only one of the elevators to this apartment is working. So they're mashing this button. It's taking forever for the elevators to come. And finally, they get in the elevator. It's packed. And of course, the elevator is stopping on every floor. 
They finally get up there, but instead of busting in, classic Canadian behavior, they knock on the door. Bruce MacArthur opens the door, and police force their way inside, handcuffing MacArthur. They find MacArthur's soon-to-be next victim, restrained to the bed, still alive, blindfolded with a bag over his face, saving him just in time. MacArthur has now finally been arrested for the murders of Andrew Kinsman and Salim Essen. Police find a murder kit inside the apartment, complete with zip ties, syringes, surgical gloves, rope, a bungee cord, and duct tape. Police also find trophies from prior victims, including Skanda's jewelry and Salim's notebook. They also find the fur coat that many of the deceased men were wearing in the photos in the back of MacArthur's van, along with the metal pipe, which they found underneath the driver's seat of the vehicle. Police interrogated MacArthur for 10 hours, and the entire time he is, again, incredibly polite, but he has no answers for police. He's just denying everything. He's not giving them any information. And remember, at this point, they still do not have a single body. They don't have any human remains. They're having a hard time getting everything that they need and getting closure for everybody. They don't know where MacArthur is putting any of these victims. They don't find anything like that in the apartment. So they're looking more and more into him. And they start thinking about what MacArthur does for a living. Remember, he's a landscaper. So he has access to hundreds of clientele, hundreds of front and backyards all over Canada. There was this one particular residence, though, that they find he frequented even several times a day. And this was 53 Mallory Crescent. The owners were good friends with Bruce and his family, and he stored his tools there since he lived in an apartment. So I guess it was like a favor, like, oh, you take care of our yard and you need this extra space so you can just keep all of your tools here. So this was a place that he frequented often and they decide to go to 53 Mallory Crescent. They take a team and cadaver dogs, winding their way through the property, front, sides, and back. But there's no signs of disturbed earth, and for some reason, the dogs keep coming back to these 15 huge planters throughout the property, like planters that you would put trees in. But it's January, it's freezing cold, so everything inside these planters is frozen solid. But you can see videos of these cadaver dogs like jumping on top of the planters and like trying to dig. So this is enough for investigators to gather up all of these planters, load them into a truck and take them back to forensics for processing. So they x-ray these planters. And the first thing that they see is a human rib cage. They would eventually find the remains of seven victims, two of which police didn't even know about. Award-winning journalist Mabin Azar would later say, quote, he would move the body parts around in those plant pots. He would sit amongst those pots and eat his lunch with his victims. It was bizarre and grim and massively disturbing, end quote. MacArthur was soon charged with the murders of Hamed Kaihan, Sarush Mahmoudi, and Dean Lisowick. Mahmoudi, who we have not talked about yet, was a 50-year-old man living in Scarborough, Ontario. 
He was a refugee from Iran, similar to several of the other victims. He was married, and he had been reported missing by his wife in April of 2015. Police had investigated his disappearance, but he had never been connected to the men missing from the gay village. Lysowick was a former addict and had never been reported missing. He was living on the streets, staying in shelters in Toronto when he could. He survived by getting money from people off the streets through sex work. In February, Bruce MacArthur was charged for the murder of Skanda Navaratnam. In April, he was charged with the murder of Basir Faizi. And just a few days later, he was charged for the murder of an eighth victim, a man named Karushna Kumar Kanagaratnam. Kanagaratnam had arrived in Vancouver on a cargo ship in 2010, one of hundreds of Sri Lankan refugees fleeing the war. Kanagaratnam had claimed asylum twice, and both times he was denied. So he fled to Toronto to escape deportation and was living underground in January 2016. He worked odd jobs for cash, and then he would send his money to his family in Sri Lanka. He also contacted his family weekly, but eventually the phone calls stopped coming. And with Kanagaratnam's status hiding underground, it's not like his family could report him missing. His remains were only identified after police released a forensic sketch to the public. So at this point, police have found remains of seven of Bruce's eight known victims. They have not found the remains of Hamid yet, but they had enough evidence to charge him for Hamid's murder. And of course, police also have to seriously consider the possibility that there could be dozens more victims' remains scattered throughout the properties of Bruce's landscaping clients. In May of 2018, the snow has melted and police sent cadaver dogs to all of the properties on Bruce's client list. Luckily, they find nothing. And in July, police returned to 53 Mallory Crescent to search the backyard again. The backyard empties into this ravine and park. There's a bunch of land. And after digging for about an hour, police find human remains in a garbage pail that would later be identified as Hamid's. So now the remains of Bruce's eight known victims are all accounted for. For nine more days, police would continue to sift through the dirt at 53 Mallory Crescent. They found more human remains every day. They dug, but police would later say they have no reason to believe there are more victims. So I would assume these are further remains of the eight victims, just how they had been, you know, scattered. And obviously we don't know this for sure, but that's what it sounds like. Police also looked into the homeowners for any potential involvement, but they were ruled out. And I did read an article about the people who live there. Um, as far as I know, they still live there. They were basically saying in the interview that they didn't want Bruce MacArthur to win and them to just like sell their home because of this tragedy. So it's like this elderly couple and they continued to stay there. So back to Bruce MacArthur, it is widely believed that MacArthur killed most of his victims in his apartment. So I mentioned earlier, the roommate was a question mark for me. For those of you who are like me and very perplexed by this deranged case, you may be wondering how a man could kill so many victims 19 floors up in his tiny apartment 
without his roommate suspecting a thing. According to an article from The Globe by Nick Westall, a forensic expert determined MacArthur moved and mixed the body parts after the remains had already been decomposed and skeletonized which would indicate MacArthur had to have kept the remains either at some unknown second location or in his apartment until they skeletonized, which is a lot like Dahmer. That's what Dahmer did, and he had a similar MO. And I strongly believe if Bruce MacArthur wouldn't have been caught, he would have had more victims. If he kept the remains in his apartment, the question is how did his roommate not smell that? And a lot of this is still not known, largely because there was no trial. So I'm not blaming the roommate. You know, he could have traveled a lot for a living. I don't know. But it is something, you know, that I thought was interesting to mention. There was no trial, though, and Bruce MacArthur pled guilty on all eight counts of first-degree murder on January 29th, 2019 carrying an automatic life sentence without the possibility of parole for 25 years. Justice John McCann says MacArthur can serve all of his time concurrently. Bruce MacArthur is now in prison, but many people have understandably strongly criticized the work of the Toronto Police Department especially the work that they did on these earlier disappearances, saying that they actively downplayed the disappearances and dismissed the community's concerns of there being a serial killer in the gay village. Retired Ontario Court Appeal of Justice, Gloria Epstein, completed an independent review of the investigation, along with a review of the investigations for Alora Wells and Tess Ritchie, the two other victims that I mentioned earlier that also disappeared and were found dead in 2017. And this independent review cost millions of dollars. Like, you don't just do reviews like this because you think police did a great job. So her over 1,000 page report, Missing and Missed, was released in April of 2021 and was quite blunt with Epstein saying, quote, the police could have done better. The report also included 151 recommendations for how Toronto police could improve their relationship with the community that they were supposed to protect and serve, and their missing persons investigations process. The report noted serious systemic deficiencies in the way that these investigations were conducted, including the mishandling of Mark Henderson's case at the time of his attack and after. When it played no part in later investigations, Epstein found this particularly troubling. Additionally, Epstein found police prejudice played a large part in this case as later victims were given less attention or priority. The review also stated the failure to check MacArthur's criminal background when first interviewed in 2013 resulted in a lost opportunity to identify him as the killer. Quote, MacArthur was obviously very persuasive. He disarmed others as to his true evil end quote. Also, some of the other sources that I read mention that it seems like most of the really good police work was done in 2017. And this was after Andrew Kinsman disappeared, the one victim who didn't look like the others, a white man. 
By pleading guilty to possession of a deadly weapon and assault, MacArthur also ensured that the trace he left in the system was faint. So this is talking about like all the earlier assaults, how he would always get in front of it. He would, you know, confess, quote unquote, but he would spin this narrative. And by confessing in the way that he did, he was able to keep himself under the radar. Had he faced more intense charges, like aggravated assault, case management would have been mandatory and the details of his crime would have been entered into a police-wide database. Perhaps if police had been more diligent when interviewing MacArthur, they would have prevented several other senseless murders from happening. Toronto police have gone on record saying that they're committed to implementing all 151 recommendations that were given in this independent review, but whether or not these have been implemented is yet to be seen. And of course, implementing these 151 recommendations could help the people of Toronto in the future, including people in the LGBT community that frequent Gay Village. But none of these recommendations can undo the harm that has already been done. MacArthur lived a secret life and victimized vulnerable communities, gay and bisexual men, many of whom were minorities and closeted, several that lived more transient lifestyles, refugees, sex workers, and of course, people whom society often labels as disposable. The gay village was a close-knit safe space for many people, and MacArthur destroyed that. Like many other serial killers, it's pretty terrifying that MacArthur was married, a father, a grandfather, and beloved by many. He was a mall Santa Claus, so we can't forget the hundreds of children who sat in his lap year after year, telling them what they wanted for Christmas. What leads a person to take another human life is something that I will never understand. Their motivations, their thought processes, their end game, but one cannot deny stories like this are always horrific, enraging, and perplexing. And that is the horrifying story of the serial killer, Bruce MacArthur. And I hope that the victims of this monster are resting peacefully. I hope that Mark Henderson is doing well. I hope that the families have some peace despite not having a trial. I cannot imagine experiencing something like this. And there's just a lot of unanswered questions still. But yeah, there you go, everybody. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. This was an incredibly important case to discuss. Let me know your thoughts on this case down in the comments below if you're watching on YouTube. Or if you're listening on a podcast, let me know your thoughts in the Q&As on Spotify or send me a DM on Instagram. I hope you all have a good week. I hope you all stay safe. And I will talk to you next week. Bye. Thank you for listening to Perplexity, a mystery podcast. Hosted, written, and produced by Kadra Brennan. If you enjoyed today's episode, tell the world about it by going to Apple Podcasts or Spotify and leaving a five-star review. It helps the show more than you know. Contact, support, and merch links can be found in the episode description. And if you have a story to share or a topic request, send an email to perplexitymysterypodcast at gmail.com. Kadra would love to read your story on the podcast. Until next week, stay curious.